Welcome to the Air Health, Our Health podcast. I'm Erica, a lung and ICU doctor. Every day in my ICU and clinic, I see patients who are there from breathing unhealthy air. And I started Air Health, Our Health to focus more upstream on the importance of healthy air for healthy people and healthy economies. Thanks for joining me. Welcome to the last Air Health, Our Health podcast of 2023. Last month, I talked about the importance of all of us engaging in scientifically rigorous advocacy at the local level. But how do we do that? Every county and town in the U.S. does not always have a scientist or an economist living there that can tell us how much air pollution is costing us locally. Fortunately, there are powerful tools that can help. Last month, I told you about the State of the Air Report, released by the American Lung Association. Today, I am highlighting the Health of the Air Report, released just last month by the American Thoracic Society and the Marin Institute of New York University. Knowing how pollution can affect your local community and, bluntly, how many people in your city and state are dying of pollution can help one appreciate the scale and potential benefit to your area of cleaning up the air. I'm excited to highlight this very powerful tool on the podcast today. I hope you learn as much from this episode as I did. Dr. Laura Gladson received her PhD from New York University's Environmental Health Sciences Department and has been a researcher with the Health, Environment, and Policy Program at the New York University Marin Institute of Urban Management since 2014. Her work focuses on translating air quality research into meaningful tools for community leaders and environmental managers, working towards greater health equity at the local and global levels. Her research has been funded by NASA and the Environmental Defense Fund, and she has received awards for academic scholarship from the American Thoracic Society and the Air and Waste Management Association. Dr. Gladson is the lead analyst of the American Thoracic Society's annual peer-reviewed Health of the Air Report, now in its fifth year, which is the topic of our podcast today. Welcome to the Air Health, Our Health podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So first, why don't you tell us about yourself and how you came to be interested in air pollution research? Sure. So I grew up in the Seattle, Washington area, but wound up doing my graduate work out in New York, New York University. I had some early life experiences that got me interested in health research, but I kind of had a hard time in college choosing a major um, until I came across public health and realized it really lined up with kind of my own personal values and approach to addressing disease, um, specifically looking sort of upstream from from the disease outcome, what's actually causing that disease in the first place, and hopefully avoiding a diagnosis completely, instead of only focusing on treating that outcome. I then took a course on environmental health in college, and it really piqued my interest, introduced me to ideas of environmental justice for the first time. Specifically, I I was just you know, really bothered by the fact that there were these causes of disease that were completely outside of the control of the individual, and often are impacting those who are least responsible for the environmental exposures, and also more socially or physically vulnerable to them. So that's kind of how I got into environmental health generally. I also was very interested after college in working in applied sciences, addressing real real world issues. I found out about the Marin Institute at NYU through some networking, really liked their approach to policy-driven, community-driven research, kind of bridging that gap between science and community or policy outcomes. And of course, they were focused on air quality, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest environmental health threat globally. Uh, So that's kind of how I found myself uh, doing this work. Um, I've been at the Marin Institute for about nine years. I've done my master's, as you said, and my doctorate. I just defended my dissertation earlier this month. So kind of the situation of everything. (laughs) Thank you. So that's kind of how I got here. 
That's wonderful. No, I, I really, looking at you, I feel like you're at the most important end of the health spectrum. So I work in the ICU and in the pulmonary clinic, and I have so many patients there where I feel like the ship has kind of sailed by the time they met me. And I wish I could go back 20 years and clean up the yeah. air they were breathing or, you know, help get the cigarettes out of their hands and all these things. Yeah. So that's the whole motivation for this podcast is literally to prevent people from becoming patients that I have to care for. <laughs> so yeah, thank no, you exactly. for what you do. Yeah, thank you too. <laughs> so we're here today to discuss your research related to levels of two pollutants, PM2.5 and ozone. So can you briefly remind us of the health impacts of these pollutants? Sure. PM2.5 is particulate matter 2.5 particulate matter referring to small liquids or solids suspended in the air. And the 2.5 is talking about the size of them. So 2.5 micrometers, which is about one one hundredth of a human hair's diameter. So it's very, very small. The reason that uh, these small particles are so dangerous is because they can get very deep into our lungs and even into the bloodstream. So potentially impacting any organ system. For ozone, this is a pollutant that we see as a result of chemical reactions on very hot and sunny days um, can cause inflammation in the lungs as well. So these can, as I said, affect multiple organ systems. There's very, very strong evidence that air pollution is causing premature death. There are multiple cardiovascular and respiratory impacts and diseases that can result. There's um, increasing evidence for neurological impacts, such as depression and anxiety. There's good and increasing evidence of adverse birth outcomes, including preterm births and low weight births. And of course, those then have both, you know, immediate impacts for that child, as well as lifelong chronic impacts. Of course, there are lung cancer impacts from air pollution, lung development impacts, and then just, you know, respiratory symptoms, coughing, irritation, difficulty breathing. I also want to touch really quickly on the groups that are at the higher risk of these health impacts, specifically children, of course, whose lungs are still developing, who are at a greater risk for asthma, elderly populations who have pre-existing diseases and other issues, and outdoor workers, of course, who are just simply exposed to air pollution more uh, for a greater portion of the day. Also, we should not forget, and I think this is very important in air pollution research, research to always have in mind, is um, our overburdened frontline communities, specifically communities of color or low-income neighborhoods. They're not only more likely to be exposed to higher pollution levels, but are, are made even more vulnerable to the health impacts of air pollution because of social factors like being disenfranchised traditionally, not having as many public resources or access to healthcare, and of course, racism and discrimination, which all kind of compound and create uh, greater health impacts. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that summary. What are the current U.S. standards for these pollutants, and where does the American Thoracic Society and Marin Institute recommend they be set, and why? All right. So just for a little bit of background on these standards, their full name is the National Ambient Air Quality Standards, or NACS for short. So if you hear that, that's what they're talking about. Um, they're a result of the Clean Air Act, which uh, instructed EPA to create these standards and then enforce them. They are enforced at the county level. So ATS's recommendations are actually consistently lower than what the current EPA levels are, lower meaning more protective of health. And this is based on increasingly uh, robust evidence in the health literature of the health impacts of air pollution at lower levels. Interestingly, uh, air pollution has improved in a number of high-income countries uh, and cities who have had decades to address uh, the issue, and we have now been able to study health effects at these lower levels uh, in these areas, but we still find health effects at lower and lower levels, and so far we cannot see 
a low level where there are not health impacts. So that's kind of where it's at in the, the research. Specifically for the standards, there are two different standards for PM 2.5. There's a short-term standard, which would be reflecting those acute or just, you know, a few days of exposure kind of effects. There's also the long-term standard or the reflecting the chronic health impacts of PM 2.5, you know, over many months or years. So for the EPA's short-term standard for PM 2.5, that is 35 micrograms per meters cubed. That unit's just talking about the mass of PM 2.5 per uh, unit of volume. So EPA sets that at 35, ATS recommends 25. And moving to the long-term standard, EPA sets that at 12 and ATS sets that at eight. Uh, this was an update in our previous Health of the Air report based on all of the literature, but specifically three uh, very large uh, multi-year cohort studies, which is a, a very strong kind of health study. For ozone, the EPA standard is 70 parts per billion, which is a unit that's just talking about uh, 70 ozone molecules per billion air molecules. Um, so 70 is EPA, and then ATS recommends 60. So as you can see, they're lower than the current standards. We really are hoping that EPA can update these soon, but it's quite a process to do so and uh, faces a lot of political barriers, if you will, trying to get those. Absolutely. Updated. You know, I kind of, the more I learn about air pollution, I frequently talk about how it reminds me of, you know, learning about cigarette smoking, right? You know, at first you're like, well, cigarette smoking. Okay. Yes. We've learned that's bad for you. Oh gosh. It turns out secondhand smoking is bad for you. Oh gosh. It turns out even just breathing the vapors coming off people's clothes are bad for you. We just kind of learned that, you know, this is just really bad for you at a whole host of levels. Yeah. So let's get into it. What is the health of the air report? So this is a joint effort between the Marin Institute where I've been doing my research and the American Thoracic Society. It's in its fifth year where, well, by the time this podcast come out, it will be live um, and the report will be published. Traditionally, what the report looks at are the county and city level health impacts, as well as national health impacts of air pollution levels that are over those ATS recommended uh, standards. Uh, we look specifically at health outcomes that are evaluated by the EPA in their own assessments, but we also work ahead of the curve to include additional health impacts that have increasingly strong evidence uh, in the health research. A few years ago, for example, we included lung cancer incidents from air pollution, which was not yet uh, examined by the EPA, though later it was. Uh, and this year, for the first time, we are including the adverse birth outcomes, the preterm birth and low weight birth, which was done in collaboration with the Environmental Defense Fund. These health impacts are all communicated to our local decision makers through both national and city-specific press releases. And we also have a website, healthoftheair.org. You can go and look specifically at your own county and see what those health impacts are for not only deaths, but we look at a number of cardiovascular and respiratory outcomes, how your school and work loss days are affected, um, and some of these other health outcomes I mentioned. So what did you find? How many more people are dying every year from air pollution above what the ATS recommends and how many more people are getting sick? Generally, these results, before I go into the actual numbers, these are essentially what would, would have been avoided if all counties in the U.S. met those ATS recommended levels. And when I say all counties, I'm really only talking about counties that have a ground level EPA monitor. I don't need to go into the specifics too much of that, but those are the measurements we're using. So we're just sticking with those counties. So those totals per year in the monitored U.S. counties include of roughly 21,000 premature deaths, 
750,000 cardiovascular and respiratory events, which would include hospitalizations or emergency department visits. We also have 3,000 new lung cancer diagnoses, which is from PM2.5 specifically, 11,000 preterm and low-weight births, and about 52 million impacted days. Uh, when we're saying these ad adversely impacted days, that's talking about school and work loss days, or just days where you're experiencing those respiratory symptoms. We also report the top cities impacted or the cities that have the most to gain by meeting the ATS standards. A note on this, because we're doing counts, this is going to be heavily impacted by the population levels. So high population cities are obviously going to rank higher on lists because they have more people breathing on healthy air. So the counts are going to be higher. But those top cities include Los Angeles, California, Riverside, California, Chicago, Illinois, and Phoenix, Arizona. And just generally... All of these results, again, as they have in multiple reports we've done over the years, support a much lower national standard. You know, I think also about all the cost, you know, to families of missed sick days, having to care for loved ones. I mean, it really touches a huge percent of the population. And then when you're looking at this isn't even in all around the U.S., right? It's just the counties that have the monitors. Exactly. And I understand this year's report also includes an analysis of the impact of wildfire smoke. You know, living on the West Coast, I'm very heavily impacted, although I know you guys in New York were pretty heavily impacted this summer as well from the yes. fires in Canada. So how mm -hmm. does this affect the analysis? Yes. So it's actually a separate analysis. So an additional analysis we've added this year, which of course, like you mentioned, it's a response to this growing impact of fire pollution. As you mentioned, the Western wildfires are becoming an increasingly problematic uh, issue here. They're increasing in their size, in their intensity, and the wildfire seasons are growing. This is a result of not only climate change, but also history of fire suppression management, which I might touch on a little bit more later. But it's not just wildfires. On any given day throughout the year, you can have dozens of fires burning across North America. And this would include, in addition to wildfires, agricultural burns and prescribed burns. So together, we will call this wildland fires, if you hear that term wildland fires. So this report looks at the health impacts of all wildland fires in the U.S., and we're also looking over the course of a year, not just during those fire seasons. And in contrast to the, uh, the analysis I was just talking about, this is in all counties in the contiguous United States. And we were able to look at this through a collaboration with George Mason University researchers, air quality modelers, who combined satellite and model data in this really unique data set where we can see the actual fraction of, for instance, PM2.5 that comes from fire. Uh, this is pretty unique in the health literature. Um, previous research has kind of just estimated it based on if smoke was present or not that day, or looking at uh, satellite images of smoke to try and figure out what the, the levels are, because it's difficult like I said, to piece that out of just general air pollution. So this is a really unique model uh, we were able to take advantage of for this project. Also, it's important to note for this analysis that we aren't sure yet how the toxicity of wildfire smoke, or in other words, you know, how much wildfire smoke is affecting our health compared to general air pollution levels. So we used a number of different equations to calculate uh, different estimates of that. Um, so I'm going to give a couple of different estimates of it just because we're not sure yet how, how toxic it is related to that. So these results for all counties over the course of a year, we're seeing our middle estimate is about 28,000 deaths from wildland fire air pollution. Um, a low estimate for that, like I mentioned, would be about 4,000. It's probably closer to the middle estimate, potentially somewhere in between Again, as the research improves, we'll have a better idea. Additionally, we're seeing about 6,000 new cases of lung cancer per year, 
400,000, those cardiovascular and respiratory events, 24 billion impacted days, and 7,000 birth outcomes. Again, the population is playing a big role in where these exposures or where these health impacts are most common. So if we're looking at the eastern U.S., obviously it has lower wildland fire levels overall compared to other regions, but we actually see pretty elevated health impacts because there are high populations out there and that's enough smoke to put those numbers up. Interestingly, when we look at the top 15 states with the highest health impacts from wildfires, you're obviously seeing the West Coast states, California, Oregon, Washington at the top. But we're also seeing places like Texas and Florida where the exposures are lower, but there's high populations again, so we get those counts. And we also see a lot of areas in the South, Georgia, Alabama, North Carolina, and even some states in the Midwest, Illinois, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, all in that top 15 list. So it really shows that it is a nationwide problem. It's not just a Western problem in terms of health impacts. We are also seeing there are levels of smoke um, in areas that don't have those ground monitors I mentioned. So ground monitors are typically in high population centers, according to the EPA's regulations. But Obviously, a lot of the wildfires and wildland fires, agricultural burns are in rural areas where we don't have ground monitors. So like I was saying, the satellites and the models help us get those estimates in these new areas for the first time. And we're really seeing how uh, the health impacts from smoke are impacting those populations. And that's really helpful. You know, I know there's already so many disparities in health outcomes for rural populations versus urban populations. And sometimes it's even just you know, knowing that something's a problem and, and knowing to address it. I think a lot of the times our, our more rural communities and areas with outdoor workers, you know, get abandoned sometimes because we're just not even able to monitor. So I really appreciate that the science is evolving to capture that. Yes. Yeah. It's an exciting time in air pollution research uh, with these new methods of measuring. And do we have an estimate of how much all this air pollution is costing us or how much all these health impacts are costing us? I know it wasn't necessarily part of your analysis, but how do you think about it? Yeah, yeah. So we don't do the, like you were saying, the economic estimates in this report. Others do. It's in the hundreds of billions of dollars per year. About Some estimates put it at about 5% of our annual GDP. And these values are mainly driven by those premature deaths from PM2.5. When we're saying premature deaths, it's not like this person would have died a week later. It's like they would have died years later. So that has a huge impact when we're talking about, you know, valuing that with some kind of a monetary value. These costs have actually gone down in recent decades. Like I mentioned, we've had quite a lot of success in improving PM2.5 levels in the United States. But wildland fires are expected to counteract a lot of that, which is really unfortunate. So it's why there's such a heavy emphasis on this recently uh, in the air quality community, because we don't want to undo all this progress that we've made. Absolutely. Can people look up their own cities and states and counties in this report? Yes. So the report itself has the county level impacts of those deaths, major events, the lung cancer, birth outcomes. And our website, again, healthoftheair.org, will have uh, additional information as well on the top cities and the wildfire counts. So it's a really great resource for the general public, but it's really targeted also especially to local decision makers who can see specifically the number of impacts in their area, which could be pretty powerful when trying to make change instead of just saying simply, oh, air quality is a problem, you know. 30 people are dying in our county every year because of this. You know, that's a bit more of a powerful message. I'm, you know, always wanting to prevent having to see people in the clinic and the ICU just from, you know, the heat and the ozone and the air pollution and the trucks going by. What steps can communities take to try to clean up the air in their area? To answer the question, I want to just 
kind of overall some big ideas or big principles when trying to do this. One would be these changes definitely need to be location specific. It's not always best to just apply, you know, something that might work nationally locally because it's going to look very different. It's great if they're evidence-based and also we want to be working with equitable partnerships among scientists, policymakers, community members. And that's very important for having effective change. So some ways that can specifically be done, and you mentioned this, but there are obviously monitoring needs in especially rural communities. Um, but even in urban areas, we don't have really high pixelation or resolution of the estimates. Um, you, you really don't have good, you know, street by street level um, estimates, which can be important for certain pollutants. The ground monitors are great in the sense that they are very accurate, they're standardized, but they're also incredibly expensive and they're difficult to maintain, um, require a high level of expertise to manage. And so, like I mentioned again, we have these new technologies. We have satellite estimates, which are um, making uh, indirect measurements of air pollution on the ground. We have air quality models that are basically using what we know about chemistry, atmospheric interactions to estimate what air pollution is in different areas. And there's also low cost sensors, um, which aren't as accurate or standardized as those ground monitors, but they can be really great and they can be sort of validated against um, these more refined technologies to actually go into communities and see what the levels are when they don't have a monitor. It's also important to locate your local sources that are contributing to your high air pollution levels. If it's transportation, if it's building emissions, if it's power plants, it's going to be unique to your community or to your city. Um, so it's important to uh, figure out what that is first um, before trying to address the, the problem. Steps that can be taken as well include checking what your if there's any local or state programs or funding sources that are already available. And if not, you know, what is needed engaging with your local environmental or health councils, talking to your representatives. These are kind of ways to improve uh, the resources that are available for that. There's also ways to engage with businesses to help them curb pollution, talking to schools, setting up monitoring systems or uh, filtration systems in schools, which obviously children are a very vulnerable population. These things aren't necessarily reducing the air pollution levels, but they are reducing exposures by reducing uh, how people are you know, interacting with air pollution. So speaking about fires specifically also, prescribed burning might seem counterintuitive if you're not familiar with it, but it's actually the best way to combat wildfires. As I mentioned, we've had this history of fire suppression where we basically just try to put up fire as quickly as possible, and that's how we manage it. But what this has resulted in is in our fire-dependent ecosystems out west, we have all this growth that's just more likely to burn causes bigger fires. It's a huge problem. Kind of the history of this is frustrating too, because the indigenous peoples did use controlled burns for many, many, you know, eons before colonizers came in and basically put a complete stop to that, created this huge problem. We're now realizing it recently and trying to re-implement those prescribed burning practices. This is being done and should be done in collaboration with indigenous groups who have this traditional ecological knowledge. So um, that's kind of where I'm talking about equitable partnerships. Um, that's one approach for that. Something else that can reduce exposure, even if it's not reducing the actual pollution level, is communication tools. So I'm sure many listeners have heard of the Air Quality Index, being aware of the index, making 
uh, clinicians aware of the index so that they can tell their patients. And there's also sort of an approach to using that index. Canada calls it the know your number approach, which is essentially you start to pay attention to what the levels are and how you feel that day. Because everyone's kind of level where they start to feel symptoms is going to be different. Everyone's got different lungs. Everyone's got different pre-existing conditions. So being aware of that for yourself and for your kids can be really a great way to use that tool. And concerning fires, you know, if you're doing prescribed burning, communities would benefit from having, you know, clear communication to the community on those burn days so people can protect themselves, can stay inside, keep their kids inside um, on the days with those burns. That's quite a bit easier than trying to communicate big wildfire smoke episodes during the chaos of that. And of course, just with all of this, we need to recognize that not everyone can reduce their exposures so easily. Not every, you know, if you're an outdoor worker, you can't necessarily just stay inside if it's a poor smoke day. There are people with families who live near major uh, traffic roads, who live near power plants, can't move, you know, can't do anything really about that, maybe can't even afford a indoor filter. Um, so really thinking about those um, susceptible populations is important when we're we're addressing this problem. I'm a big advocate for not placing the burden on the individual. I don't think that's fair. And I don't think the individual is responsible for these uh, air quality problems. So it's really kind of a community-wide effort, really like looking at that through an environmental justice lens, thinking about who the most vulnerable populations are and really helping and engaging with those frontline communities. They should be part of this process when scientists are coming in, when policymakers are coming in, the community members need to be part of that process from the start to the very end and beyond. I think a lot of people are very turned off, appropriately so, by, you know, national politics and everything. And fortunately, a lot of work around cleaning up the air from having done a little bit here at the local level can be pretty collaborative. You know, I think everyone wants their community to be healthy. I think people don't really like it when people come, you know, swinging in from some bigger, more far off seeming organization and then start telling people what to do, you know, it's it's more, you know, kind of coming together as a community with something like the Health of the Air Report saying, okay, well, these levels are high, you know, what can we do, right? We don't want to hurt our local business. Like, how can we support our businesses to clean up emissions if needed? You know, we want our kids to stay in school and have them be happy and healthy, and we don't want to necessarily rebuild the school. How can we clean up the air by the school? You know, like trying to, let's solve this problem together in our community with our values, what our resources are. I'm hope that that approach can be a little more fruitful and a little less scary and toxic than sometimes trying to wade into the, the national realm at times. Exactly. I really do think local specific, you know, your community work is really, really powerful and probably the most powerful way to address the problems. Of course, you know, national studies, national work is really important too. It can kind of instigate some of this work, but definitely there's power in the local level and those being affected, being involved in that work. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, trying to come up with like, obviously funding resources and ways at the national level, to, you know, different variety of programs to help people kind of figure out what's the solution for their local community, I think is probably the best kind of partnership mm -hmm. to work for. Well, yeah. I want to thank you so much for the research and the work you do. It's so important. It keeps people out of my ICU and clinic, hopefully. <laughs> is there anything else you want to add? I don't think so. I just... Hope people take a look at the report and it'll be online. Talk to your local councils, decision makers, stakeholders. Hopefully they'll listen to you. You got an actual number you can bring to them. I sincerely appreciate the work of Dr. Gladson and New York University and the American Thoracic Society to help bring what seems like a large abstract problem like pollution down to our local and state level. 
I know I repeat myself often on this topic, but I think there is so much that can be done at that local level and state level if we all raise our voices. I think most people, regardless of political persuasion, want to live in a clean and healthy environment and will participate in creating one. If we all find out more about the local impact of air pollution, whether from the Health of the Air report we discussed today, the American Lung Association State of the Air report I highlighted last month, or even our local Department of Environmental Quality sensors, we can work in our own communities to clean up the air and stabilize the climate. So what can you do? First, see if your city or county or state are on any of the top lists from the Health of the Air report for being highly impacted by pollution. If so, contact your representatives at every level to see what can be done. Listen to last month's episode, Clean Air and Climate Advocacy for Busy People, to learn how to get started. Second, check the report to see how impacted your state is by wildland fire smoke and make a plan for protection. Listen to the Our Health and Wildfire Season episode to learn more about how to do that. You can also learn more about controlled burns and protecting your home from wildfires in the Fighting Fire with Fire episode. In terms of the pollutants mentioned in this episode, you can learn more about ozone from Dr. Nasikis in the True Cost of Ozone episode from last season, and more about PM2.5 from a whole host of episodes, including the What's in a Standard episode with Dan Costa from Season 2 and the What's Burning episode with Dr. Gooby from Season 3. To learn more about personal tools with regards to air pollution, learn more about the air quality index in the What's in an Index episode. Finally, consider a donation to the American Thoracic Society, which funds excellent research like that behind the Health of the Air report and also advocates for clean air and healthier air quality standards. We're coming to the end of the podcast. For more information about the importance of healthy air, please visit airhealthourhealth.org and follow on Instagram and Facebook. Remember, if you do nothing else, don't light things on fire and breathe them into your lungs. This applies to tobacco, diesel fuel, forests, and more. Thanks for joining me today. I am a full-time physician and not an epidemiologist or public health expert. This podcast is for your education and entertainment, but should not be interpreted as individual medical advice. Please consult with your own healthcare team to determine what is right for your health. Thank you and stay safe.